Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. And so we're we're back with part two now. Make sure you've listened to part one where we went through all the evidence for the different Daryl Medina strikes that we're going through. And so now we'll be discussing strikes in ancient Egypt and looking at more modern comparisons more holistically now. So first, I, I would like to ask why, I mean, this is a huge question and people have written books about this, maybe just to get our listeners some context. Why do you think there was such a crisis of resources at this time? We see the vizier saying the granaries are empty, the treasury is empty. But then we also see that the temples, the mortuary temples and the mayor, he has they have some resources to themselves. What's actually going on? Is it because of the larger sea people invasions? Uh, allotment of resources are going different places. How do you see this this crisis? Why aren't the Dear Medina workers getting their rations? Well, I don't think we have the answer to this question, though I I really wish we did. We're so much of what Ramesid history is, is working out a larger Egyptian social historical landscape through a a smattering of texts from Western Theban necropolises. It's kind of crazy. Um, So you'll use like Papyrus Wilbur or the Harris Papyrus to try to reconstruct all of Egyptian economies and and palace economies at that and it's it's not necessarily going to work um but it's what we've got and so you know if you're if you're talking about why the vizier or the king's granary is empty is it really empty because how many times during a strike do they say we don't have the money to pay you like like look in the in the writer's strike we don't have the money to pay you while an industry executive ceo is making 200 million dollars a year um they do have the money. It's not been redistributed. Someone else is getting the money. So it could be as simple as that, that we're dealing with a Ramesid Okay, so let me, let me change which, the question then. Why yeah. does the king, if he is also powerful, why isn't he paying the workers that are making his tomb and he doesn't deem it yeah. necessary to allocate the tomb, so I think, allocate this resources? I think we're dealing with a Ramesid situation in which in which you need more people are demanding payoffs, more people are demanding quote unquote bonuses. More more men are quote unquote new men um, or are empowered to skim off the top in ways that they haven't been before. And it's quite possible that in this new institutional system, that there's so much skimming off the top corruption, if you might, if if we want to put it more directly, that the money is not going to what it's originally intended to. But people who are in charge of moving that money are pulling resources from it for themselves. Um, that with that amount of corruption, granaries can empty out really, really fast. Why is there corruption? Um, I, I always go back to that Chris Ayer article about um, the collapses of patronage and and society, and we can put that in the show notes. And it's in a weird um, socioeconomic volume that has nothing to do with Egyptology in it, but it's really, really useful to talk about patronage in this way. 
Um, and then, of course, there's all these crises that we've talked about. There's the Sea People's Invasions. There's there's mass migration. Go back and listen to our late Bronze Age Collapse episode, and that covers yeah all of the issues yeah. that are possibly going on that are going on at this time. So. And crisis demands a lot more delegation and a lot less direct control than you would like. And if you're trying to do things quickly or you need to do things quickly because there's mass migration and Libyans are coming in, sea peoples are coming in, then you're going to empower people with certain amounts of wealth. They're going to start skimming off the top. But, you know, money is going to just it's going to disappear into the fog of war (laughs) very, very quickly. So. So, you know, where is the money that the vizier is going to pay um, for these Euro Medina labors? I think one thing is clear that building the royal tomb is considered less important on the agenda of the vizier, Mm. if not also the king, Mm -hmm. than it ever has been before. That's what I was thinking in my head, like Thebes, like more and more focuses on the north. Mm -hmm. Thebes, yeah, that's well be buried and stuff, but it's not as... You know, it's on the back burner, as you were saying. And it's so cool. If that's the case, if it's the case that it's really not high on their agenda to get this awesome royal tomb, then that means they get less social reward Mm -hmm. for building it. They get more social reward for putting their money into other places or there's more necessary places that that the money needs to go to. So it's. You know, there's this rift between North and South ever since the civil wars at the end of the 19th dynasty. Ramses III's father was the one who swept in and united North and South again after those civil wars between between Seti II and Mm -hmm. uh, who seems to have had Theban control, whereas Seti II seems to have had Northern control. And and once Setnacht of the 20th dynasty re Stills a, a sense of order in the Egyptian world. He, you know, the sea people start piling in and the mass migration starts happening. Um, and I can imagine at the end of a civil war situation, the corruption was already pretty bad. A lot of local decentralized systems had already cropped up. Once Setnaft and, and Ramses III set up shop, the, the corruption must have been already pretty, pretty brutal. And that that's going to, yeah, that's going to empty out a treasury. And the king may have thought that money was going to the south. I wish us, but it's going. not. Mm-hmm. If like, the yeah, king didn't even know this was going on, like he's so busy doing yeah. stuff and the vizier and people under him are like trying to like manage this and are shifting around resources. And the king's totally not even, doesn't even know that the workers building his tomb are being paid. And it's it's a funny thing. If you don't live in a corrupt system, you can't quite get it because you might be like, I don't understand. Why would the vizier not just fire all of his guys that are emptying out the granary when he finds that the granary is empty and he can't pay the the workmen of Daryl Medina? Well, those dudes make him have a career. That's the only reason that he's there in that mm-hmm. vizier position. So he's got to feed, he's got to pay off his lieutenants. Everyone seems to be paying somebody off in mm-hmm. short. And so it's... um. It's a huge issue. I, I think there are attempts to correct these problems. There's a point in Ramses four or five when the crew is doubled to mm-hmm. 120 men. Mm-hmm. And they need to get, they're trying to make amends. They're trying to be like, look, we understand. We fucked up. We're going to give you some more money now. We're going to, 
we're going to feed even more of your people in the Western thieving community than we have before. And then there comes a point, and I think it's Ramsey's six, where they're like, fire half the crew, the choice is yours. And mass mayhem ensues. Everyone starts trying to bribe the foreman to, to be like, me, 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 right? Yeah. And it's, it's a cluster S of pain. And that's brought on by this vizier's office as well. So there's mm-hmm. an attempt, there's an attempt at a correction mm-hmm. on hiring more people, but it's also a burden on the Western Thieving community in some ways. And then they they pull it back. Mm-hmm. So there's there's um confusing decision making happening at the at the same time. And these things just they they go on and on in this chart that you have here. Yeah. Got Ramses three, there's disturbances, Ramses four, but there is that break mm-hmm. between Ramses five, that, six, no. seven, eight, whoever seven and eight are. I mean, no. super short lived, right? And then you get to Ramses nine and then shit starts to go down again. Nope. Not to mention 10 like and 11 very, overlapping, yeah. of course. Oh, year. Yeah. yeah. For many years, yeah. nine, 13, 14, 16, 17. So there's just mm-hmm. continual issues. But how should we, because in these texts, we see the crews every time going to a mortuary temple, thinking mm-hmm. presumably that this place might be able to help us or they have some sway. And so how do we see mm-hmm. the vizier, the king, vis-a-vis these temples that have some connection too with the temple of, like the main temple of Amun at Karnak, um, these mortuary temples beyond location and that they're the places that are close by to Dira Medina on the West Bank. Why are they choosing these places? Why aren't they going across the river to Karnak and having to sit in there? Or going to the, the yeah. palace or wherever the vizier is um, at this time. Like, why these mortuary temples? And in a lot of cases, these, whoever, these high priests or the gardener of the cattle of Amun is giving them grain to satisfy them. Like, why are they stepping in? Why aren't they just like, well, I'm sorry. Like, we can't help you. Like, that's the king's, that's the king's problem. Like, go away. Oh. Yeah. Why they don't go to the East Bank? I, I have ideas for that. But let me start back with the the civil war because it's it's already the end of the 19th dynasty the vizier and the king are arguably pulling resources from thebes because it's a black hole from which nothing comes back to you and (laughs) so there's extraordinary distrust they're they're not gonna put all their stuff in there again i'll repeat it it's amazing that the kings still were buried in western thebes Mm -hmm. and shows how powerful egyptian ideology of place and cultural memory is that mm-hmm. the kings, these the, that Setnaz and Ramses III needed to place their bodies into the Gorn Mountain and were willing to risk a an arguably problematic Theban population to get their bodies in there. Yes, you can see in the in the 20th dynasty, they're trying to put loyalists in there. They're trying to to make sure that their guys are. There, there's, there's Dural Medina guys that you can tell are from the north, uh, argued by Dural Medina scholars rather than themselves. So there, there are attempts, but there's less money going towards this, this southerly place, which means mm-hmm. that the institution of temple is just getting stronger and stronger in the absence of the real patron of the king and the vizier mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being there. So, so, and then, and then as to your question of why not go to Karnak? you know, the belly of the beast of the institution. Why would you not go there? There's nothing that's going to say it explicitly for the reign of Ramses III. But you could you could certainly make the case for Ramses 9, 10, 11, that they're going to the mortuary temples because 
this is where the recommodified necropolis wealth is going. And if if one wanted to be really brave in a scholarly sense, you could say that maybe this kind of recommodification was already happening in Ramses III. I don't think it's that crazy, given the coffin reuse evidence that I see. So, and if corruption is happening, skimming off the top, patronage shifts, people being really unhappy, splinters, you know, splintering of the social fabric of what Dero Medina is and how the hierarchy works, all of these things are happening. So they're going to these places. First, they're close. They're on the West Bank. Um, but second, maybe there's stuff, the stuff they want is there. Yeah, I agree. Um, and um, in yeah. a very Egyptian sense, right? If you have an issue, you don't go to the god. You go to your your local ancestor, some, someone who has like more immediate power in that area. So maybe they're going to these places, one, because there's now this burgeoning interaction between the necropolis and these mortuary temples, recommodification and stuff. But also like they have a more immediate, right? You might get immediate results, which they do. Mm-hmm. They get handed Versus like going to Karnak, you might say, oh, I need to talk to someone like, you know, you're just going to get put off and put on hold. Where if you're going to these maybe smaller, quote unquote, temples, you might get more immediate results and they might see this as an avenue of a power that they can sidle themselves into versus Karnak. They're just going to, you know, that's just like you're entering the bureaucracy bubble. <laughs> Yeah. And all of this is happening at the same time that stylistically, mm-hmm. art historically, the tombs in the Valley of the Kings for the 20th Dynasty Kings are becoming more ostentatiously visible, higher in terms mm-hmm. of the height of the tomb, mm-hmm. the more imposing and monumental in terms of the doorway than ever before. Mm-hmm. The relief is is carefully cut and it seems temple-like in its creation rather than hidden and tomb-like, certainly. Mm -hmm. So there is a progression from a a hidden tomb-like space high up in the cliff of Titmus III to something that's right out at the entrance area like Ramses II so that everyone can can see it and collect there. Right, to to a Ramses VI where there's this monumental gateway and you could bring the Bark of Amun into it if you want it. It's that wide, it's that tall. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really interesting progression of of stylistic change, such that the tomb is less a place for keeping it hidden, keeping it secret and safe, as we have in the tomb of Ineni or the burial of Tutmos the First, but instead a way of ostentatiously showing power to a Theban elite and a larger Egyptian elite. Yeah. So it's super interesting that that is happening at the same time. Security itself is breaking down. They're making the tombs more visible, ostentatiously visible at the same time that they cannot protect them. And we're, we're talking about restricted knowledge that's just been opened up into a flaming wound of everybody knowing everything. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how are we going to even try to keep this secret? We don't, we don't have a lock on our Medjay. We don't have a lock on the hierarchy of Yomadini. We're not paying enough. We don't have the control. And so they're like, fine, is, it, is this organically happening? I have to suppose people aren't, you know, ma- you know, going through this very carefully and logically in their minds. It's just a way humans are. These are organic systems. But it's it's really weird to see those two things at the same time. And then when Ramses III is killed, so we have the civil war and nobody trusts Thebes because of Amon Messi, right? Mm-hmm. But then Ramses III is killed in Thebes 
in the the harem palaces of Thebes, and we have this from another set of papyri that are now in Turin, the the, um, harem, so-called harem conspiracy papyri, whether you find that orientalist and and problematic or not, whatever, that's what we often call them. And it's about the people involved in the murder of the king. And when Ramses III is killed, what happens? But it's, they pull resources. And if you look at Eastern Thebes, for example, and you go to Karnak Temple and Luxor Temple and you try to find shit, monumental shit that has been built for Ramses IV, Ramses V, Ramses VI, Ramses VII, Ram- you're not going to find much of anything at all. They're not investing in monumental structures. There's some mm-hmm. reuse. There's there's some uh, carving onto already existing walls, but no one's building anything new. And after Ramses III, there's not even a new mortuary temple in the West Bank. So there's no jobs creation. There's no influx of cash. There's no Beyonce concerts happening in Luxor. It's all just, you know, austerity and you're going to kill our king? Well, watch us. We're just not going to give you any of the good shit from Mm -hmm, the North. mm -hmm. And so it's rather unspoken, but there seems to be this real tension in these strike papyri about a um, North-South series of troubles. Yeah, and then eventually the main necropolis will move to the north at Tanis. So it's like we see this as the beginnings of the, yeah, the, as you're saying, the patronage shifts, the focus of the king and the vizier are going again and again to the north. And then the priesthood is just taking sole control down there. And, I mean, we talk about industry collapse all the time in the United States. There used to be all these coal mines and Pennsylvania and people had these good middle-class lives and, mm-hmm. you know, could, could do amazing things. And, and then the industry gets shut down for whatever reason. The industry is, is dying. We have other sources. We have fracking. We, we have other mm-hmm. ways of getting Different technologies. Energy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the craft industry is shut down. You see this in Northern England with pottery kilns as people move to different kinds of ways of firing their pottery or throwing their pottery or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, the the interesting thing here is that Dero Medina as an institution, if not a village or place, but as a community of practice of artisans, continues even after the Valley of the King's industry of building king's tombs stops. Mm-hmm. It's shut down. And what we see is those skilled men with restricted knowledge and cultural memory of where the best shit is hidden dismantling their own industry through the generations. They are empowered and paid well to help dismantle what generations of them before have built. Mm -hmm. And one wonders if you then, if you were um, Jehuti Moza or Butek Amen, if you're able to have that kind of perspective of saying, look at us going into these tombs pulling out the king's bodies, helping to unwrap them and rewrap them and rebury them in a regilded coffin. Look at what we now do and think of what my father did, what my grandfather did, what what they built, we are unbuilding, <laughs> we are undoing. And and you can see that happening in in industries around the world. You know, like space shuttles shut down. Well, what are you going to do with the space shuttle people? You're going to help them restore the space shuttle, move it to museums and places Mm -hmm. where there can be a public consumption and a nationalistic patriotism around the space shuttle. And they shut down the industry with the final um, 
killing zone of putting it in a museum, right? Something like yeah. that. Um, but like it's, in, there's a it's, you could see yeah. a sense of like this is what we were forced to happen, right? Like my ancestors mm-hmm. built these tombs and look at where like because of the crisis and all these things this was our only choice that was forced upon us and in a way it's it shows the resourcefulness of humans right that people always will find a way usually short-sighted but at least we're resourceful and we'll adapt and make the best of the situation that they were given they were like hey we're not building tombs anymore but we know where all the good tombs are so we will loot them and recommodify them and um create this new industry and in a way yeah. i can praise them for their resourcefulness even though eventually yeah. it it's short-sighted and not gonna once you loot all the tombs that's it you can't do anything else and where do they end up because they end up going to dear medina the village moves to medina tabu they end up moving yes. the entire village to the mortuary the temple space of mm-hmm. to the mortuary temple to the amen institution on the west bank and that is indeed where they end up. But where does Buteh Amen have himself buried? From what we can understand, and, and it's, there's not great evidence in those coffins came to the Museo Egizio quite early, mm. but it seems that he had himself buried at Dural Medina, that there was this deep love for this place, an affinity, a connection, mm-hmm. ancestral connection. And mm. he wanted to be buried with his with his forefathers uh-huh. in in this old it's like i don't know it's like there's a one of those pennsylvania towns that's on fire because the coal is just burning uh-huh. underneath the ground and everyone's moved out yeah. but you still have your body interred you know you bury your father on the old cemetery with the relatives because yeah, this and, is where they belong with the rest of their ancestors yeah having been to many of these pennsylvania towns that used to be you know very rich from coal mining and stuff and yeah. you just see people not leaving because that's where their family's yeah. from, even though there's not jobs and all these things that people still, even though maybe it's not in their best interests, that they continue to stay there because that's where their family has been and there's roots there and you yeah. feel a sense of pride or connection to this place. There's a huge emotionality to it. And if you think mm-hmm. of the whole Make America Great Again cult, and this is, and I'm not denigrating it. Make America Great Again is looking back at a time when you were paid well, when there was hope for your children, when there was an education that you could rely on and the system worked. That's all Make America Great is. And that's why there's such a large, well, that's not all it is, but in the more idealistic sense, that's what it is. But it, when you look at it, it's an ideological yearning mm-hmm. for, for this past that that was so perfect. Nostalgia. It, yeah. You can, this nostalgia, that, but this look, this yearning for safety, and you can see it in these strike papyri where people are just disgusted. They're confused. They're anxious. They're, they're like, what the hell is going on? Why, why have you done this to me? Everything was working fine before. And it's why Make America Great Again is an ideological cult of the working class in this country. And you mm-hmm. could argue that you can see a lot of those same ideological tropes in these strike papyri, they they are they are there, you know, father, why have you forsaken us kind of talk. And it's um it's it's an interesting um it's an interesting human progression into mm-hmm. change that we really don't like. We really don't like to to shift these and things. We like to hold on to what we've had. This is a perfect transition to my fi- my final question of um, you know. As you're saying, like, what can we learn from these ancient strikes 
as you're saying, you know, I was speaking about the resourcefulness, but also maybe of people being resistant to change. And a lot of people are not, you know, don't look at these strikes that are going on fondly. They see them as very disruptive. It obviously is a sign of things aren't going well in a lot of industries. A lot of workers are unhappy. It's it can be scary to a lot of people. They don't they want the status quo, like just go back to work and like shut up and, you know, or they say you're really not that badly off denying people's feelings. And I I think when we look at the so-called first strike in history um, with the Egyptian evidence, we see maybe (laughs) that we were repeating many of the same patterns. And um, but that I think we can also get some hope in that though things can be scary and might seem there might be endings to certain industries or things like this, but that um but that humans ultimately are resourceful and things that are necessary for our society's functioning will pull through, but that there has to be changes that you we can't just keep going yeah. on the way it is that eventually the scariest change can be that it has to happen it's It's an interesting thing to see when social fabric starts to rend asunder, that people rise up with with a series of entitlements they think they are deserved. And when those entitlements are not met, then there is there is great consternation. And the Dear Al Medina workforce, it seems, you know, this was a this was a really good gig if you could get it. Uh-huh. And the people who were a part of it you see their privilege, you see their entitlement, you see the confusion and the shock that they're not getting what they should be getting. And it's it's like when you look at the coal miner and you're like, oh my God, why are you surprised? How can you be surprised when you look at some of these industries that have failed? You're like, what, what are you even, what's even going on um, that you're so confused by this? But it's, um, it is this emotional uh, refusal to see anything in a, in a different lens. And, and I find that really interesting, but you see it on the other side too. So if you see it with the Dero Medina guys, we're like, what, you would do this to us when we've done all this for you. And how could you even this, this shock? There's also shock on the part of the vizier and the Kings who are like still stupidly putting the tombs into the Theban mountain. And then they're super shocked in the Ramses nine Tomb robbery papyri, they're like, oh my God, how dare you? How could you even think of doing something like this? Like, oh my God, how is security broken down? And how could we have come so far? And it's a refusal of human beings to recognize the crisis as it is happening. They don't want to see it. Instead, they will stand there and display their shock and horror and their entitlement of how could this happen to me? And the people at the bottom of society are like, fuck you, this has been happening to us for generations. We really don't get it. And we're going to go invade the Nike store now. But like, it's, it's really interesting to see those people at the, at the top and, and then right below them, these, this sub-elite, if you like, or lower elite who, who can't quite figure out where everything that was, that was so easily gotten is now to be gotten. And then, you know, these ideas of, of using the old system um, because what's the new system of the 20th dynasty? The new system is mass migration, um, raids from the Libyan desert. I wouldn't say it was better. <laughs> yeah. I know, but it's like, it's like a it, destroy or be destroyed kind mm-hmm. of, it's not better, but people don't want to see what the, what the actual new reality is. Trust me, 
when the, the end of the 20th dynasty comes, the high priests of Amun, Pionk and Harihor are going to arm up and they're going to get into that position from general, from being an army general. Mm-hmm. They're going to mm-hmm. enter into the priesthood from a military community of practice. Mm-hmm. So it will become clear that if you want to survive in this crisis, you better arm up, you better get a, a really good military connection and that's your way into this institution. But it's it's really interesting to see people like clutching, I, I like this word, like clutching onto their old ways, their old ideological belief systems and saying, um, no, no, it's it's all going to be fine. Amin will protect you. You should write a letter to the vizier <laughs> and, and everything will be fine. And the vizier is like, look, I got... I got all kinds of shit that I'm dealing with up here in the Delta, but you go ahead and write me a letter about this cute little tomb. Yeah. I don't even, I can't even think about this right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I, um, I resonates, I feel like very much, right? It's not just about people getting paid and having time off and all these, uh, these are system, symptomatic of a larger systemic issue that we'll see where it goes, but I'm not hopeful, but we'll see. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right now. Yeah, we could go there. But like there's a really interesting text and I'd have to see what what it is for the show notes in the in the sub stack. But there's a there's a really cool text where they're paid in grain, not in grain, but in in metal. And the guys oh. are like, what What well, I the hell? How, yeah. you know, you can't. What do I do with this? I can't eat this. But there is a tremendous amount of wealth, but it's not wealth that you can actually easily commodified it's like when we used to go to egypt and you would offer but you can't live off of it you know it's like when we used to go to egypt modern egypt a couple years ago and you would Mm -hmm. i don't know run out of egyptian pounds and you would offer them american money and they would be like i don't want this like that means i have to go to the bank and get an exchange and it's this whole thing american coins only american yeah yeah um, now but now they want the dollars yes but a couple years ago i remember i offered someone money because i didn't have american money because i didn't have uh, Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And they were like, I don't want this. This is like too much work for me. You know, like, can, can I, I tell you that person probably thinks of that every day now, given the pound they're dollar like, debacle. And yeah. they're probably like, taken like, oh my cash. God, I could have exactly. I it was like 20 bucks, bucks or 10 bucks. Yeah. Oh my God. They're probably like kicking themselves every day going, what the hell is wrong with me? Didn't but, understand you know. what, what that was. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. crazy. But again, this is all, um, to, all to, in the same way, like metal, to me, I'm like, oh, that's a good deal. Like, take the metal, not the grain. That's like, you know, mm-hmm. but for them, if they weren't used to working and how did they didn't know where to go to exchange the metal to get the stuff they needed, like, that's just they're stuck in that system of rations and grain and stuff. So, yeah. But, but look at the American system. Like, look at the House of Representatives that yesterday fired Speaker McCarthy. Crazy. And everyone's like, what do we do now? And how do you, how do you make this work? And we're still trying to run the Congress using arguably 18th century uh-huh. <laughs> um, systems. And you're trying to do 21st century work with 18th century mm-hmm. systems and good fucking luck. So, you know, all this originalism, all of this um, founding fathers talk, it's a nostalgia and a sense of entitlement. And an ideology of how do we keep the, the power that we've had in and day by day, people are talking more and more as the crisis goes on about the realization of the stakes, because when it's the water in which you swim, you can't see it mm-hmm. until it is upon you as well. And then you're like, oh, so what that person was saying is not some weird conspiracy theory or some the sky is falling. Oh, my God, it's something I need to be listening to and preparing for. And 
it's um, crisis doesn't happen like that. And it's crisis isn't something like in the in Cormac McCarthy's The Road where you're, you're people eating people. Mm-hmm. Crisis is generational progression of people moving your cheese <laughs> or your cheese just disappearing and you having to figure out a new system of, of social survival um, through slow and sometimes very sudden punctual equilibrium um, moments of realization of, of where you need to go next, mm-hmm. but you can't read the future. So yeah. you don't know what you're building. You don't know what you're going to make. Much harder. History but- is always 2020. And we can look back and go, those stupid people and Ramsey's mm-hmm. the fourth time. What did they should have known? And no one knows in the time that you're in. Well, you're just like, trying you're to thinking live day to day, you can. right? You're like, where's my grain? Yeah. I need to feed my family. And you're not like, oh, how will this systemically alter my job prospects in the future and all these things? Yeah. 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 But well, this was super fun. Everyone always talks about this being the first strike in history, which I feel like it's always the first anything I think always makes me a little itchy. But um, I still I think it's interesting. The recording process of it is very interesting and very telling of why they chose to record it, how the workers dealt with the conditions under which they were and how the state and the temples responded in turn. I think it's very, when I was watching the news the past couple of days, it had me thinking about this Egyptian evidence and how people in the past dealt with similar problems that we are going through right now. It gives me a sense of comfort, you know. It is. And, you know, then as the Egyptologist, you have to look at different recording systems that when you're using the old systems and you're working through your own emotional entitlement, you are going to write letters to the viziers and we will find them and read them. <laughs> and you are going to, you're going to document things on in the Necropolis mm-hmm. Journal so that, you know, we get to read them later. It's not going to work for you. It's not going to function. And then you realize, oh my God, this isn't working at all. And you know what? They stop writing it down. So after Ramses 11, you don't get this kind of documentation, arguably because you don't have a desert community out there anymore, but you you actually see a different kind of documentation that is moving into a different community of survival. And mm-hmm. that just that, looking at what kinds of tech survive, what people are doing to strategize and, and make their way through it, you can infer a lot from mm-hmm. the society that you're that you're working with. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to see how they work through this problem, whether or not it worked or not. But it's 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 fun to you know follow along and see how they dealt with it and the ramifications of it and the repercussions and and all these things. And I don't know. I think that's why everyone always, you know, why are you interested in ancient history and all these things? And I always come back to, I think it provides me a sense of comfort, not a higher power, but I have the past to give me a sense of comfort that we've went through all of these problems before and nothing's really new. Being, being a, yeah, being a historian makes you a kind of a witch. Mm-hmm. You are able to see the future in some way because you can see into the past and you, you have a better psychological understanding of how long things take. Um, how long it takes for the the scales to fall from our eyes to see the situation that we're in. So that when people say, oh, democracy's failing, it's almost like, oh my God, you're so over the top, really? And then they look at and they go, oh my God, democracy's failing. <laughs> they're like, yes, I have been saying this. But, but and then you're the historian slash witch who, <laughs> who is able to look at, at luckily, this story luckily in, they a, don't burn in a us kind now. of way. <laughs> you know, they're talking about it. So, and there just, are You just get canceled. <laughs> No, no, there there are states in this union where uh, systemic misogyny and forced oh, birth yes. and yes, yes, yes. Um, 
and control of the woman through ideological means is is the norm. Mm-hmm. So I I would say um, witchcraft, witch burning in its way, is uh, alive and well. Yeah. And 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 here we are using old systems for very new problems. Using we haven't very learned outdated our legal. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we're humans. We're, we, we, you can only use the systems you've got. So if you have corruption or embezzlement or abuses of power, you go to the legal system and the legal system will get you only so much. The Egyptians tried this too. They went to the legal system. They went to the great Kenbet. They went to the lesser Kenbet. You know what they did when things got really fucking bad? They went to the Oracle. They went directly to God and a whole bunch of dudes held up the statue of the Oracle and they decided, are you guilty or are you not? And things got really simple. And there was less, there was less responsibility given to any one person. It was a more communally owned, communally owned decision. And mm-hmm. I, one wonders uh, what kinds of you can already see decision making moving in that direction. January sixth was that kind of a decision making. We're not going to wait for the law courts. We're not going to wait for a vote mm-hmm. recount. We are going to take it. We're going mm-hmm. to just take it. And and people are already thinking in those terms of of not using the. Some a minority not using the old systems and using the new systems, and uh, the majority is still trying to live within those past models. Um, and meet, when systems don't work anymore, then you have to rebuild new systems, and those systems have to burn to the ground, such that so that others can be recreated. What's going to happen for us? I don't know, but we historians need to get our witchcraft going right We're now. In our end of the twentieth dynasty phase, <laughs> currently exactly we'll see what our twenty first exactly. dynasty holds. I mean, we could even be like 19th dynasty. Um, oh, okay. I would put us like may- maybe there, but, but you know, there's a lot more um, punctuated equilibrium in this modern world and things we can move, Time moves faster. Fast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, we'll I don't know. So we'll see. Maybe the civil war was our 19th dynasty, the 1860s civil war. And now we're in our Ramses three phase. What's our substat catchphrase? History is not repeating. It is now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's apt. For yes. this conversation. Yeah. Yes. So I hope you all enjoyed learning a little about, about strikes in ancient Egypt and pu- labor relations in the more technical term. And we'll see where what's going on with our, our strikes as well. If you can organize, organize. Yes. I mean, do it. Union um, support. We, we need the more strikes, the the better, the more that we can we can push things in this direction. Social inequality is off the hook right now. It is it is gotta, crazy. Gotta and we all know it. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Well, this is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. 
Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.